When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. TV, comics, movie stars, hit singles and some toys. It's trivia and dirty jokes. An evening with the boys. Once is never good enough for something so fantastic. So here's another Gilbert and Franks. Here's another Gilbert and Franks. Here's another Gilbert and Franks. Colossal classic. I can't take it anymore! Prince Ali! It's Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. Ah, well, we'll probably embarrass our guest this week by calling him a living legend, but we're going to do it anyway. He's a songwriter, conductor, music director, record producer, and composer for stage, television, and motion pictures who has received a Tony Award and an Emmy Award, 11 Grammy Awards, and 8 Academy Awards. His celebrated stage work includes the musical Sister Act, The Bronx Tale, Newsies, A Christmas Carol, and Leap of Faith. Successful stage adaptations of his iconic Disney musicals. And of course, the most successful production in the history of Off-Broadway, Little Shop of Horrors. His unforgettable compositions for feature films helped to usher in a renaissance for both Walt Disney Studios and for big screen musicals in general. And his scores and songs for films like The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and uh, Aladdin. Hey, I think I know that one. Ah, uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Pocahontas, Hercules, Home on the Range, Enchanted and Tangled have earned him eight Oscars and a hallowed place in the history of American songwriting. Classic hummable melodies like Under the Sea, Be Our Guest, Beauty and the Beast, Friend Like Me, A Whole New World, Go the Distance, 
colors of the wind and I see the light have thrilled generations of moviegoers and become part of the soundtrack of our lives. Not bad for a guy who originally thought he'd go into dentistry. <laughs> Frank and I are excited to welcome to the show one of the most talented and admired artist of his generation and a man who clearly didn't think enough of my singing voice to write me a solo in a lap. The great Alan Menken. <laughs> Thank you, Gilbert. I would have written you a song. We just didn't have room for a song for for uh, Iago. I swear, it would have been great. What wasn't humiliate the boy supposed to be uh, Jafar and Iago, Alan? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So why why didn't you cut out one of Robin's numbers? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that, that would have made sense. Like, oh, sorry about you, that. But <laughs> you should have cut out friend. You should have cut out friend like me. And whole All right. new world. Let's do it. Let's do it. That's fine. Was that when when humiliate like humiliate the boy, which didn't make the cut, Alan? Was was if I understand it correctly, was at the point where Gilbert had not even been cast as Iago, because I I, yeah. I I think the parrot, if I'm if I'm understanding this correctly, the parrot was also kind of a cultured British voice. Oh boy, uh, it's possible. That yeah. was, but it was way back. That was, yeah, it was really way back. Um, we, you know, it was one of many songs we tried to get into the movie for Jafar. And for the movie, we were never able to get a song in for Jafar. Uh, and we ended up putting in a little reprise of uh, Prince Ali. But yeah, Humiliate the Boy was um, one of the early versions that Howard and I wrote. And then Tim Rice and I wrote a song called Why Me. Again, it didn't make the cut. Gilbert, did you do a song for the Tiki Room, an Aladdin song? Did you record? Uh, yes. Yeah? Yes. When when the Tiki Room switched over, you know, when they got rid yeah. of those horrible birds going, Tiki, 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 tiki <laughs> Room, which is like torture, uh, they, they made it that Iago takes over the Tiki Room. I love that. And so I sang a reworded version of A Friend Like Me. There you go. There I you want go. to hear that. I, I, I might have heard, I'm trying to remember if I heard that. Because I know I heard something about that, I remember. Well, good, good. I'm glad so they, you were, you would have written me a song if there I, was. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. First of all, you're Gilbert Gottfried. You're not chopped liver. <laughs> Alan, he's sung on this show Dozens of times with Jimmy Webb and Tony Orlando and oh. uh, and and uh, and Paul Schaefer and Kenny Loggins and and Paul Williams and Paul Williams. All right, well let's 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 sing something. Sing with me. What should what should we what, what should we sing? <laughs> the, oh, oh, uh, uh, whole new world. <laughs> I can't wait for this. Oh my God, what the world missed. 
I can't believe it. <laughs> now you know why it never in, happened. In, in the sequel to Aladdin, <laughs> their direct-to-video ones it. they were making, uh, Return of Jafar. I had two solos in that. See? Uh, well, I I wasn't involved with those, so uh, yes, I know. <laughs> but 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 as far as the tiki room goes, Gilbert, you have you have recorded and performed an Alan Macon composition. They have. Yes. There you go. Yeah. And and here's one of those trivia things I bring up. I have a habit of a future guest of this podcast that I've written next to on planes, uh, Richard uh, Mazar. Well, Cole Reiner, I said, two rows behind. <laughs> uh, Mike uh, Nesmith? Mike Nesmith. Oh, wow. And, and uh, oh, God, why do I always forget his name? John Leguizamo. Oh, yeah. And, oh! And, and you and I, Alan, are wrote next to each other, uh, sat next to each other on a plane. Uh, oh, yeah, of course. And I think on some press junkets, too. We travel and, together. And what, what I remember is this is the way I'm always in a daze. I, you were sitting by the window. I sat down next to you, and you turned to me and said, Gilbert, how are you? And I was like, oh, hi. And uh, then you pointed <laughs> to yourself and said, Alan Menken. And I went, oh, oh, yes. <laughs> hi, Alan. <laughs> I didn't know if you remembered. Like, <laughs> well... Listen, you're you're more of a known face and voice than I am. So did you did was, you think it was just another fan saying hello, Gilbert, on a plane? Uh, yeah, I yeah. was very annoyed that he was bothering. Me. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Wait a sec. No, we were we got onto a plane together. Was it in Toronto? Yeah, I don't remember where. Oh yeah, it was it, it was uh, yeah some airport. We were standing in some waiting area, and we were both fetching and as one does. <laughs> Alan, tell us why I'm interested in, in, in your childhood. I was doing some research, and you grew up in a home, like many of us did, where uh, Broadway soundtracks were playing. Your parents had a great love of music. Your father played the piano. Yes, my father uh, played piano. My, my mother was an actress. Uh-huh. Uh, my, my father um, was a dentist, but he played, you know, loved to play the piano, mostly boogie-woogie. Boogie-woogie, yeah. But he had uh, all the, you know, the books of the, of the great... Uh, it was a Rogers and Hart book and, and uh, the, the Gershwins and Frank Lesser. And he would, you know, open the book and just pound his way through the songs. And I would play the right hand and he'd play the left hand. And they'd play, you know, cast albums throughout the whole house. And, um, you know, it was great. You know, when, when I wanted to become a, go into music, they were a little concerned because I never liked to practice. Mm-hmm. And, they, you know, most people assume, well, somebody's going to go into the music business, but he's going to sit and be very diligent and practice. But all I wanted to do was just play to enjoy myself. And, of course, that kind of passion to just sit and play. And people have a misconception that that, that means it's just a hobby and not something that becomes important in your life. And the truth is the thing you want to do every day is what you should do in your life. It's a thing you really love. And that's is what I love, just creating music on the spot. I love re- I love learning things about the guests. And going to your website, there's that wonderful video of you with the electric guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Doing your best Jimi Hendrix. Oh, yeah. My, my harmony, harmony electric guitar. Oh, God. I, those, those things you remember when you were a kid. Yeah, I remember, you know, even the smell of the guitar. The feel of that, oh my God, I have an electric guitar. So there were there were pop star aspirations? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, my dad, Norman Menken, DDS, 
And he introduced me to a lot, you know, a lot of music. You know, for instance, when we were working on Aladdin and we had the character of, of, of the genie and actually it was um, the genie of the ring, the description of the genie of the ring really brought Harlem and Harlem jazz to mind. Um, and, um, and so I thought of Fats Waller. And thus came uh, you know, Friend Like Me and Prince Ali, which is more Cab Calloway. Those are all out of, you know, Normie. Uh, my dad uh, was a huge influence on me that way. What a thrill that must have been for him, Get, getting to hear this stuff and knowing that he implanted some of that. Yeah, well, once, once I was, um, you know, sort of making it in the business, uh, it became thrilling to him. Until then, he was a little, a little concerned. Um, I remember when I was working at Little Shop of Horrors, I, as, I, as I always would, I would make a, um, a recording of the score to the show and send it to my parents just to have them hear what their son is working on. And I, I, I sent him the score to Little Shop. Now, I should explain that my dad, of course, was a dentist. That's all the men in my family were. Besides that, my dad was president of the New York chapter of the American Analgesia Society, a society of dentists that promote the use of nitrous oxide as safe. And of course, <laughs> I know where you're going with this. And I, I thought, I thought it would be funny if we, if we had the dentist because we had, we had. How are we going to end Act One and have the dentist killed? In the movie, Seymour throws a, a bottle and it hits a bum on the head, and that becomes Audrey Two's first big meal. But we, you know, that wasn't going to work for a stage musical. I said, how about the, that the dentist laughs himself to death on nitrous oxide because he really wants to give it to himself instead of the patients? Howard thought that was hilarious, and we went with that. And so I, I you know, my parents heard the tape, and I came home, and there was a, on the answering machine, I guess, hi, Alan. <laughs> it's, it's, it's mom. <laughs> we, we heard the tape. Uh, okay. Click. <laughs> and so Janice said, oh, I think your mother was just so moved. I said, I, I-, I don't think so. <laughs> and I called them back and said, well, how would you feel if you spent your life promoting the use of nitrous oxide is safe and your son writes a show where somebody dies on nitrous oxide? But then, of course, the show opened, became a big hit. And my dad, you know, would talk to his buddies and said, well, you know, you have to believe in man-eating plants. And next thing I know, whenever, you know, Orrin would pull the thing down and say, look, Seymour, this could happen to you. And he'd show an X-ray of a, or a photo of some really horribly deformed teeth. That was usually one of my dad's patients that he would, uh, he would give me the photo to use for the show. And, and among your many awards, endless awards, you won an award for Worst Song. yes. Worst worst song of the year, the Razzie Award. Um, I won. I found out I won the Razzie Award on the night of winning the two Oscars for Beauty and the Beast, which was a big night. It was wonderful. And I go back there. I'm in the press room, and I'm talking about you know Beauty and the Beast and uh, Celine Dion and and Angela Lansbury and all the wonderful things about the show and all that. And then somebody says, "How does it feel to have won?" the award for worst song of the year. I said, what are you talking? I didn't know. He said, what are you talking about? And it turns out I'd won the Razzie award for worst song of the year for um, high times, hard times from uh, Newsies. The song was Anne Margaret on the swing. Uh, high 
my time is hard time Sometimes I live in the sweet And sometimes there's nothing to eat And I gotta admit, it was a pretty embarrassing scene But... <laughs> <laughs> but years went by. People loved the movie. And then so I went from the Razzie for Worst Song of the Year to the Tony for Best Score for the same project, but some, you know, 30 years later, which is, a, I think, a great lesson for people. You you never give up on anything. Gilbert, you don't have any Razzies in, in your whole career? Amazingly, no. <laughs> <laughs> you'd, think, you'd think I'd have an entire... Uh... Uh, <laughs> well, I have to say, but and with the Razzie, I found out just very recently there was a physical Razzie award which I didn't have. So I, so I had my office get in touch with them and say, Alan would love to get the physical Razzie. So years later, they send me the box comes with a physical Razzie award, and it's this little, you know, it's in a in a little on a stand, and it's got these little uh, gold beads together in a raspberry form. I put it down and literally five five of the beads just fall off the thing immediately. So it's clearly <laughs> not exactly the most expensive thing in the world, but it's very appropriate. You said when um, Newsies came out, it, it was really bombing. And you were sitting with Jeffrey Katzenberg. <laughs> and yeah. could you yeah. Well, so the, yeah, I loved the movie. I, I knew the songs were really good. And it was, you know, we did have, it was Christian Bale's, he was like 15 years old yeah, and, a kid. playing our, our Jack Kelly. Um, and so the movie opened and uh, it made like, you know, bupkis. At, it was just like <laughs> $2.6 million at the box office. <laughs> and um, I had a breakfast, I remember, at the Four Seasons with Jeffrey Katzenberg. And it's traditional with Jeffrey Katzenberg. You usually get about a five-minute breakfast with him. Hey, buddy, have a coffee? Okay, how you doing? And out. I mean, you're just like... <laughs> Anyway, but I remember saying, you know, what are we going to do? He said, you know, about, about Newsy, he said, Mencken, I could take $10 million and throw it up in the air here on Doheny Boulevard and it would do just as much good. It's DOA, baby, DOA. And bye-bye, Newsies. <laughs> and yet you win a Tony for the same and music years yeah, later. Pe- people loved it. Yeah. It, 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 um, it really made a splash over, you know, over the years. But uh, not well, at the box office. There's that challenge you talk about in interviews where you're talking about how slow people are to accept actors in live action suddenly opening their mouths and singing. Well, there is a, that. A yes, problem absolutely. you don't have in animation. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a documentary out now about Howard, Howard Ashby. Oh, I just my, watch my, it. It's great. So you saw. I love um, that. Then, yeah, in that interview we were doing at the um, 92nd Street, why? Mm-hmm. Howard, <laughs> it was just hilarious. He's saying, you know, people are watching a movie and they're going, why are they singing? Um, <laughs> but at that time, movie musicals were pretty dead. So were animated um, musicals. They were, it was, it was dead. And, um, you know, really, I got to say, we were involved in bringing it back with, with Little Mermaid. It was just really good timing. You absolutely were. I remember James L. Brooks making a film called I'll Do Anything. I don't know if you remember this. I the, do in remember. In the 90s, and there were songs in it. He had Albert Brooks was in there and Nick Nolte, and I can't remember who the actress was. And and they were they, he had to pull the songs out because they tested so poorly. And then there was also, there was the, um, Woody Allen did a, a movie called, I think, Everybody Says I That's Love You. Right. Um, That's right. Which had right. songs in it, and... 
you really have to know exactly how you're how you're using these songs. It's it's in the form you've got to you're making a pact with an audience that they have to know why things are being sung, and they have to really know why and understand the context and understand the style and understand how it works. Otherwise, they're just going to tune it out. Well, it, it's just like when I'll watch a movie. Sometimes you watch a movie and music starts playing and and you go, okay, they want us to start laughing now or they want us to, and, and it it distracts you from the scene. Well, if it's done badly, it distracts you. If it's yeah. done well, yeah. And, and also it's like if a musical is done badly, it go, you go like, well, why are these people in the street singing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and then, but but if you, if you carry it even further, then it, like for, you look at something like Springtime for Hitler, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the brilliance of Mel Brooks. I mean, it's 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 spoofing somebody who, who creates something so absurd. But <laughs> if you're in on the joke, it becomes the best joke ever. I mean, the thing about comedy songs especially is almost always when you want to laugh at a comedy song is because you feel smarter than the person singing it, you know, the character that's singing it. Mm-hmm. You're sort of ahead of it. Um, so, they, you know, with, with comedy, it's a very specific um, set of conditions that, that helps, let's say, a comedy song to land or an emotional song to land. Um, if you want an emotional song, you know, to land and make someone cry, the last thing you're going to do is write a song where somebody's feeling sorry for themselves. Now, you know, you want to write something where they're feeling very hopeful in a very dark situation. So there's all these little little nuances that you learn over the years about what makes a musical tick. I've heard you say um, that about Audrey's character in Little Shop, that she has every reason to feel sorry for herself, and yet, right. and, yet and and yet what she doesn't when she sings her want song, as you call it. Yeah, um, yeah, it's. Uh, I know Seymour's the greatest, but I'm dating a semi-sadist. So I got a black eye and my arm to the cast. So that Seymour's a cutie. Well, if not, he's got inner beauty. And I dream of a place where we could be together at last. She's just so dreaming of this, of this little tacky house mm-hmm. that she can be in. And we fall in love with her. Because she has this dream, but she is the saddest, you know, loser, you know, on the, in the world. Um, but and that's yeah, that rule of opposites really works for musicals. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. And here's something I ask every singer and composer on this show. It's still a mystery to me. And that's where do songs come from? It's a vocabulary. It's like where does that where does that last sentence come from? It, because you know how to speak and you understand the language, 
and music is a language. So I understand the language, and I also understand that with any music, like with, take a take you know our Aladdin for for example, um, to just have somebody start singing w- without a context wouldn't have worked. But to start the movie with, for instance. you go, oh, I get it. We're doing a, a very broad spoof of the mysterious East. And as soon as they get the tone and they go, okay, we're not taking this seriously. I get it. People are in on it. And every step of the way you make choices that are fun and imaginative, and then always have a wink that you could go to where people understand the context of the music. And then, yeah, and then it comes to, you know, it comes from, an inner place where I love music and I love creating music of a style. And also, you know, part of that is also going, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to write this thing and I go, oh no, that's a piece of crap. I'm going to throw that out. Let me try this one. Oh no, that's a good. And knowing when to go, okay, that one's good. Good. <laughs> you know, um, you never fall in love with your own material. Just always be ready to throw something out. You know, it's and- funny. I was just watching, they just showed recently the Conqueror. Yeah. With John Wayne's Genghis Khan and Asian oh, oh makeup. Oh, my God. And there's, out of nowhere, there's like a, a musical scene with these girls. And I remember thinking, oh, there's Hollywood's faraway land music. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and you know, in different eras, people are more used to it. You know, it's it's all a matter of context. I don't know and, where audiences became so cynical about music and films, though, uh, uh, Alan, because we grew up with West Side Story and The Sound of Music. M- musicals musicals were a part of the fabric of American cinema. And then one day, you know what I mean, Gilbert? Yes. One day it just became unhip for, well, for, for people to yeah. sing. Music migrated for the mo- migrated over to recording. It came back a little bit with the Beatles, you know, and Help and Hard Day's Night. But, you know, heartfelt break into song where you're really singing in the in the sure. moment really counts on it being in a genre that supports it. And um and yeah, and audiences now have have obviously um smaller attention spans and they're smaller now than they were when we were doing Aladdin. They're getting smaller and smaller. Um and but that's 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 why, you know, look if you look at what Randy Rainbow does, for instance, on, on like YouTube. Oh, he's great. Those are the currently that's the equivalent of, of musicals now. <laughs> that's amazing. They're little mini moments. Yeah. But you know, but that's how it works. Anytime somebody anytime you, you sing in a context where it's telling a story or giving a message, that is a musical. And if it works, it's a musical. But people need to understand the context and understand why am I listening to this. And can you play, if you could remember, what you, everybody has that one song that they're completely embarrassed by that they wrote. Do you have one of those? <laughs> well, I, do I have one of them? I have like a, a, a ton. <laughs> well, I'm not, okay, honest, I'm not embarrassed by any song I've written uh, in terms of the quality of the actual writing, except when I was a kid. I, I mean, when I was a little, I remember when I got my first guitar, I wrote a song. And when uh, I was little, I think I was 11 years old. I wrote, if she's gone. But I wanted to sound, you know, it was, it was, I think Bob Dylan had come out and I wanted to sound, you know, sort of 
hip, and <laughs> I've been through a lot in my life. She's gone, gone, and I want to die. You know, I'm living a lie. She'd have stayed if only I had else. But I know I can't bring back the past. And of course, I only had about <laughs> 11 years of past. See, like, I, like, I, I like that. I must be crazy. <laughs> for, for an 11 11- I thought the same thing. I thought, oh, this is one of his bad it's songs. pretty good. And it's good. Uh, no, yeah. well. <laughs> no, I don't write bad songs. I just, it's only bad musical assignments or inappropriate times to be writing, playing a song. And for an 11-year-old to be hunched over the guitar playing, ah, she's gone. <laughs> Might have been a little stupid. I, you have to see a picture of me when I, when I looked like at 11, you know, basically with my horn rim glasses and my and my crew cut and uh, the pants that were two sizes too large and all that. Alan, where did you learn the storytelling of songwriting? Was it learned in, in the BMI workshop or was, did you, did you know instinctively listening to all these, these, uh, these soundtracks as a, as a kid? No. Did, did you learn, did you learn structure? It came later. No, the structure, you know, there was a great teacher named Layman Engel mm-hmm. who ran the BMI musical theater workshop. Layman had been a, was a legendary conductor and composer, but as a conductor, he had conducted so many of the Broadway shows of the 40s and 50s. He conducted Porgy and Bess. Um, wow. And Lehman had a workshop, and he also wrote a book called Words with Music, which really defined, you know, the, the ABCs of writing a musical from the viewpoint of the pit of a show. And so in this workshop that I, that I was in for years, we would basically discuss how songs land in, in, in a musical and they follow an arc. Mm-hmm. And besides, you know, being in the context, the songs also, you always have to be ahead of the story. Songs always have to be pushing story forward. You never write a song without knowing how are you going to stage this? What is the actor doing while they're singing? What is, you know, what is going on that, that we want to watch? So you have to ask all these questions and be able to answer these questions before I let my, my hands anywhere, you know, near uh, the, the keyboard or near a piece of music paper. Because Little Shop seems like a textbook case to me of that. It establishes the world. The girl group establishes the tone. Yeah. You know what, you know what you're in for. You get Seymour's story right up front. You get Audrey's and, story, what she wants. And before we came up with that version of Little Shop, we had an earlier version of Little Shop, which was completely was much more like the Corman movie. Like there was a song, uh, uh, Feed me, I'm hungry. Feed me, I'm starving. Feed me, I'm fading and fast. Feed me, you moron. Feed me, you nudnik. It was very much, you know, also there's a song, When it's time to pick a pet flower, who's the shrub we love? Who's our potted plant of the hour? Who's our bush when push comes to shove? Who rakes in that cash? Those kudos, look my who came through. Not Audrey Hepburn or Audrey Wood. Though both those ladies are well and good. The dismal failures beside the beautiful Audrey too. And little pods go, Audrey, Audrey, Audrey too. <laughs> and people listened to it and said, you guys, are you crazy? This made no sense. And then Howard 
came in with the idea of, you know what? We're going to do this as the dark side of Greece. And tell, and also, it's, the, it's, a, it's a story that feels like the end of the world. They want to tell through songs that feel like the Phil Spector rock and roll right. and the girl groups. And, and as soon as you go, oh, I get it. I get what they're doing. It's like the music you find in some cheap uh, beach blanket horror movie from the 60s. Then, boom. That, it's, it's all about the conceit. And again, it's, if you get that right, then, then you start writing and you sort of pour your creativity into that mold. Because it's funny. If a musical's not done right, uh, you go, well, why are they singing in the middle of dinner? I mean, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, uh, there's many examples, uh, you know, of, of wonderful pop singers or, you know, songwriters who don't really know the rules of writing a musical and just write songs to tell the story it's, that sort of follow the story but don't really have a break into song uh, quality about them. And they're kind of legendary. They, they kind of, they become concept albums that people sort of, they, they love and they have some wonderful songs in them, but they're never going to work in that bigger context. And that bigger context is, is a huge part of what we do is, as musical theater writers. Mm -hmm. Your late great partner, uh, uh, Howard Ashman, and people really should see the documentary, which will yeah. plug like crazy, made, made by Don Hahn, who you worked with forever. Yeah, and it's on Disney Plus. Disney Plus, a real labor of love, a real sweet film. But I found it interesting that when Howard first had the idea to take this kind of obscure Corman movie and turn it into a musical, that there was some skepticism. You yourself had not seen the film. Do I have that right? No, I, I, I didn't see it until Howard recommended it to me, and then I flipped out because I knew you could just feel it's such a good idea. Mm -hmm. um, but Howard and I were very in tune that way. Yeah. Uh, there was that, that sense of that off-kilter. And, you know, when you, there are, when you find a property that, um, that you can make your own, you know, for instance, the idea of telling the Aladdin story um, in the style of like a Hope Crosby Road picture, which is really a lot of the style of, of what we drew on for uh, that, that, you know, the mysterious East and the idea of uh, telling it through that. Now, the idea of, of telling uh, of the Little Mermaid and, and using Brecht and Vile for the style of Ursula or whatever, all, all those choices are worth their weight in gold. You know, one of the inspirations for Ursula was divine. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. A lot of, you know, that there's a very hip elements and you sneak them into something with a heart of, so pure of the, like the Disney animated things and something magical happens. Did you ever have one of those assignments where you have to write a song for something and you go, I, I just don't know. I, yeah. I just don't see it. Yeah, of course. I mean, I've had whole musicals that... You know, you could, you could, so much wonderful material could go into something. And if it's not right, it's just like flushing it down the toilet. And other times, if the, if the idea is right, you could write almost anything for it and it works. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I remember we wanted, we wanted to write a comedy song for Pocahontas. And we kept trying, Stephen Schwartz and I, to write a, a comedy song. And we had Grandmother Willow. I remember we were trying to find something comedic and they one after the other, they were just embarrassingly not funny, but you know, it's simply a bad assignment. Mm -hmm. And then we wanted to have a comedy song for Hunchback of Notre Dame. And we actually were able to, 
even though after the stage version it was removed. But what possibly could be funny, you know, in in the animated movie of Hunchback of Notre Dame? And we came up with, well, we had to establish these characters, these gargoyles, who are sort of basically Quasimodo's inner voice. And at some point, they know that he, his heart is just so moved by Esmeralda and said, you know what would be funny? If these grotesque gargoyles sing to Quasimodo about what clearly good-looking guy he is and how a guy like you, she'd never done So it's basically a, a, a French boulevard song uh, that three grotesque gargoyles sing to a deformed hunchback. And it was charming and funny, but it took a lot of work to find something funny in Hunchback of Notre Dame. But Howard was a master of that in, in sort of beating up your own characters to make a comedy song. The You know, the uh, Gaston. Yeah, another great one. Yeah. And, and, Would you call that a drinking song, Gaston? Well, yeah, it's like yeah. a Sigmund Romberg uh, a drinking song. But it's and it's uh-huh. it's these denizens of this bar who are basically like Neanderthals singing the, in praise of this complete lunkhead, and you get it. Now, you know, when you get, the, I, I use antlers in all of my decorating. It's just, it's full on the floor, hysterical. So um, those are great, you know, really good assignments. But there are some times where people say, we need a comedy song here, but there's no good idea for it. You're just, you know, falling over, not laughing, trying to write anything that'll work. Similarly, you know, people, if you get trapped into writing a self-pitying song and thinking that people will be moved by it, and mm-hmm. that's, that's not going to work. I wouldn't dare ask you a favorite Macon composition, but but I, I will ask, is there is there one song that was especially satisfying and that you struggled with it and then you finally solved it? Uh, does something like that come to mind or does it happen so frequently? No, it doesn't. I If, if the assignment is right, I, it, it's not a struggle. Mm-hmm. But I'm talking about Hunchback, I, I, I'm, I'm very drawn to the, you know, out there. There's, just, there's something about that piece, of, that actually, that piece of music preceded which is one of the very few times I write a piece of music that preceded the actual project. Mm-hmm. And ironically, of course, that with that score was that was when I finally stopped getting Oscars. <laughs> they, they, <laughs> they drew the line after Pocahontas said, "No more for Mencken." That's it. And they were like among musicians. It seems like, uh, well, that's why there are a lot of hack musicians who do this, and and great ones. You find certain notes, I heard, that these notes make you happy, these notes you get sad. <laughs> well, it's, it's harmonies. It's, you know, yes, every piece of music obviously has a connotation. If I, uh, if I want you to be, yeah. That clearly will... You know, sort of a sense of melancholy about it, as opposed to. There's simply it's it's you know it's right on the face of it, music is a vocabulary. It's it's like having a discussion, and it's to me 
I always believe that when you get to a musical, you should be, I, you should be able to be so, you should be able to actually just play the music with no words for a song moment and get what is dramatically needed. Oh, that's fascinating. You should be that clear about the musical choice that it, it's- It's creating an emotion. Creates, it creates a moment, it creates an emotion, it, create, it, it creates a world. Doesn't mean that it entirely tells the story, but the musical choices should be that specific and that, and that tailored to the moment, to the character, to the arc of the story and all that. Tell us about meeting Howard for the first time. I had been exclusively a composer lyricist myself, and I get a call from, I say, Maury Eston. Maury Eston wrote um, Nine and, mm-hmm. and uh, Grand Hotel and, and the musical of, of Titanic. And Maury called me and said, Alan, there's this guy, Howard Ashman. He's looking for a, 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 you know, a composer. I know you write music and lyrics, but would you, would you meet with him? I said, I don't know. He said he has the rights to a, a, a novella by Kurt Vonnegut called God Bless Mr. Rosewater. I said, oh, I love Vonnegut. And so I agreed to meet with Howard. And he came to my apartment. He, Howard had his own theater. Is that the WPA? WPA. Uh, and um, Kyle Rennick and, and Howard. It was this hole-in-the-wall theater on, on the third floor of 120, uh, of uh, 18th Street and 5th Avenue. 19th, sorry, 19th and 5th, right above the uh, Chopsticks Massage Parlor. Um, <laughs> this wonderfully tacky little space. And, and yeah, I mean, you know, he has, his, he has the, the property that I love and the theater. Little did I know he's also an incredible genius. Um, although he, I could tell his lyrics were good, but his sense of what he wanted was so palpable. And he was this triple threat. Of, he was a book writer, lyricist, and director, which worked wonderfully with Rosewater and with Little Shop. It's fascinating in the doc to watch how he would sing for the performers, how he always kept everything in his head the whole time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He knew exactly how things should go, exactly what how how things should play, how the joke should play, yeah. Where to where to place the emphasis? Yeah. Did you guys all? Did you your process was? Did, were you always in the same room together? You prefer it that way? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You want you, you want to get the nuance of somebody going, oh, I love that, or eh, I don't know, you know, or I like that, but it, I think that came too easy to you, or you, I think you've done that one before. You should do something a little further. You want that immediate feedback to just that's what, at least I do. And, and, and I also want to get, you know, him to have a sense of, of where I want to go with the song. And so it's that, that whole push and pull. Mm-hmm. Those must've been great moments. Yep. I thought, yeah, I thought of another song, but I mean, it's just such a terrific Burt Bacharach song. So yeah. What's that? But when you really think about it, raindrops keep falling on my head. Yeah. It, it's like you go, well. Bert has this wonderful, you know, a song like that, and many, most of Bert Bacharach's, when you get into There's number one, what you're responding to first is a sense of ownership. You you feel comfortable (laughs) in rhythmically and harmonically this is a man who knows exactly where he wants to be you feel it in 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 the music you feel it in the voice you feel it in the whole sense of the song and music is a combination of obviously tonalities and and rhythm and dynamics in a way that 
in the in the, it's it's like cooking in the hands of the right person. You you cook a meal and it's just heavenly, and someone else can have the same recipe, but it may not be quite as good. Burt Bacharach and Bacharach and David are just masters, master songwriters. Absolutely. I think that song was written with a hope that Bob Dylan would do it. Have you heard this story? No. Yes, I believe that's true. Uh, we'll double check. We'll double and triple check it. And it eventually wound up in the hands of B.J. Thomas, who did a wonderful job with it. My understanding is they had a fantasy of Dylan recording that. That must have been quite a fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll triple. I'll triple check and get back to you. It's so perfect because when you really think of raindrops keep falling on my head in that scene, he's on the bicycle. Yeah, it's great. It's great you marriage. Go in in a funny way you when you think about it you go well what does that song have to do with anything but and look at but look at um sound of silence and the graduate yeah it's yeah that's a good marriage that defined a generation you know we all went away to college with simon and garfunkel be sort of in our blood part you know a lot of it because of the marriage of again that story and that song not to say all their material was wonderful and they and had a magical effect on us, but when you combine a song with a visual, when I grew was growing up, I think my favorite Disney movie was Fantasia, and it was you know you have these great classical pieces and this imagery, and I just forever after that married the sense of a story and imagery to music. And I, I never listened to classical music in the same way again after that. I think you have some of those moments in your films, too, in your work. I mean, I see the light as a, a great marriage of imagery yeah. and, 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 and music. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. Thank you. The way that comes together. We, I, we, that, okay, there's one I struggled with about, I don't know, 10 different versions of that song until we came up with that one. Because we were we, at a certain point, we had one that was a just big... In a blaze of light, ah, da, 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 da. Very, you know, per- a perfectly wonderful song if you wanted a big, over-the-top big ballad. And it turns out that, you know, all those days watching from the windows, all those years outside looking in, something very delicate and quiet, that's what was needed. But I remember sitting in a room with a, a guy named Chris Montan who, who was the head, you know, a head of music and animation at Disney for all those years, and just trying, how about this one? How about this one? It was like an eye test. Is this better? Is this better? Is this better? And we finally went, okay, that's where we want to go? Great. And once we, you know, because you've got to get just what does that moment want? Yeah. You, we talked before, Gilbert, on this show about songs of longing. And, and Alan, you write a great longing song. Thank you. You, you, write, a, you, and you, write, a, you write a beautiful love song. Thank you. I, I, I assume you just you just have a, a, a knack for it. Yeah, I do. Um, it's, you know, it's 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 like a, a player hitting a fastball. None of us we couldn't hit a uh, a Chapman fastball. You know, uh, but um, part of your world is another one. Yeah, yeah, it's another one that's just haunting. But where it comes from is we know there's water flowing in the mm-hmm. ocean, and that sense of just water flowing. Look at the stuff, isn't it neat? Wouldn't you think my collection's complete? Wouldn't you think I'm the girl, girl who has everything? Look at this trove, treasures untold. How many wonders can one cavern hold? Looking around her, you think, sure, she's got everything. 
I got gadgets and gizmos aplenty. And listen to the Howard's lyric specificity. I got who's it's and what's it's galore. You want thingamabobs? I got 20. But who cares? No big deal. I want more. I want to be where the people are. It's, you know, there are times where the music needs to be a bed for those lyrics just to rest on. Uh-huh. And there are times where the music is the propulsive element and the lyrics need to support that. It's, again, that's all about collaboration and an experience working together. What, what wonderful moments. I can only imagine the magic that you guys, those, those, those little moments when the sparks hit, when, when, it, when it all came together in the room. When you hear the songs years later, I mean, songs trigger memories in everybody in a way, but when you hear these songs years later, are you, do you flash back to, those, to, a, to a moment? Ah, I, rem- oh, I remember we solved that right there. Absolutely. Absolutely. How, how nice that they all have, they all trigger such, such happy memories. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Some of them. Tr- tr- <laughs> all right. I'll tell you a story that is the silliest story ever. We were doing the stage musical of Hunchback of Notre Dame in Berlin, Potsdamer Platz. And we had, and we were doing what's called a Zitz probe. Zitz probe is it the first time the orchestra plays through a score and the singers are there and the orchestra is there and big orchestra in this room full of our producers, all Germans, we were literally within spinning distance of where Hitler's bunker was. Wow. And <laughs> it was right by, right by the walls. Pastemerplatz was right by it. And Stephen Schwartz and I had a problem we couldn't solve with one number. And we were, Michael Cosby, our conductor, was about to run down this number. I said, we want to go down the hallway and just try to fix this one section. So just rehearse something else, and then we'll come in and we can rehearse that number. So he said, well, I'll rehearse the first part of the song. And we went to another room where fiddling at the piano, and we finally solved it. We go, oh, my God, we solved it. And I am so excited. I come rushing into the room, throw the doors open. I said, guys, I've arrived at the final solution. (laughs) Ouch. (laughs) And the room freezes. (laughs) It's too these two Jewish songwriters, a Jewish conductor. And I'm sure the, you know, the orchestra, you know, no, the God knows Germany's changed night and day since, obviously, since the Holocaust. But I, I just think of that moment of the, the aha moment, and I have to laugh when I, <laughs> anytime <laughs> I think about, you know, one of the aha moments. Anyway. Um, so there are humorous moments as well. <laughs> yeah. But, but then, Not yeah, just anytime, moments of triumph. Anytime I play Beauty and the Beast, I think about, you know, Howard never lived to see Beauty and the Beast. Tale as old as time. It's just, you know, it's, I it always, I, I simply flash back to when we wrote that song. Mm-hmm. There's also, you know, it says over the years of, I lose the sense of ownership of the song. It's like your children. Oh, your children grow up, they go out to the world, and they have their own lives. And in a way, I know I gave birth to these songs, and these songs are really, they have their own lives now. You know, um, I'm, I'll gladly still accept the, <laughs> the royalties. You've sent them off to college. <laughs> yeah. And, and, th- and they've sent my kids off to college. 
Yeah, there's a sense that the songs belong to the world at a certain point. Good memories, too, about when the songs come together in the recording session. There's a nice moment in the Howard documentary where you guys are sitting there and Angela Lansbury and Jerry Orbach go into the booth. Oh, God. To, and oh, it, God. And, and boom, it, there's, there's just, it, it clicks. And you could see the two of you guys light up. Understand, we had rehearsed the song, David Friedman conducted, and we had rehearsed the song. Angela went in to just sing it with the orchestra, and that was the first take. Wow. Now, we did, you know, afterwards get a couple of, just for safety, but that was the first take. And it, it was, yes, it was utter, utter magic. It can be, it, it can just be gutting, you know, the experience of that full orchestra and, and, and the voice. Are there composers that you look at and go, damn, I wish I could be as good as that guy? In, in certain respects, uh, I can tell you which composers I love. You know, listen to a John Williams score, and I just go, "Where does you know?" Oh yeah, uh, you're a Jerry Goldsmith guy too. A Jerry Goldsmith, yeah, Alan Silvestri. Okay, one I can't duplicate. I cannot duplicate how Tom Newman does what he does. Tom he's, Newman, he's great. He's great. And I knew Tom when he was tr trying to write for musical theater. It was the same kind of style, and it wasn't really quite right for musical theater, but what he does for film, I've, if you, you know, every score will have a temp score. They'll give you, they'll put it maybe, a, if they put it a Tom Newman piece of music in the temp score, it gives you fits because you can't duplicate what he does. I mean, Lin-Manuel Miranda, I can't, just you look at the brilliance that comes out of him. Uh, I knew Lin when he was a kid, a little kid, because he was a huge fan of Little Mermaid. Then we got to work together on the you know latest mermaid movie, but you know when you see in the Heights and Hamilton, and I go how how yeah he's a talent uh, uh, and and that's with you know any of the you know there are, there are moments I saw I remember in seeing a Dear Evan Hansen and what uh, Pasek and Paul did I went look what they did there they sort of repeating that just you know th th there's a freshness of style and intelligence you see. When I saw Book of Mormon, I said what Bobby Lopez does. And yeah, there isn't a songwriter. I look, I said Wicked, and I said what, what, what Stephen did in that. Mm -hmm. There are moments that are just magic. But because I've had a lot of gratification for what I do and a lot of uh, support, I don't, it doesn't throw me into a, a feeling of insecurity. It, I just, I'm now, thank God, able to just be, I, I love that. I, you know, I listen, to, I, Adam Gettle has done some things, and I go, weird. Look at those turns he makes. It's so interesting. I wouldn't have thought to do that. You know, there's Gershwin. I mean, you just... And you grew up listening to Lerner and Lowe and, and Rodgers and Hammerstein, and you said Frank Le Frank Lesser. Frank Lesser. And, uh, Think of a song like Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat and the construction of yeah, that. Yeah, I mean... I, artful, artful to listen to. It's just a pleasure a pleasure to listen to. And, and also in... Uh... In anything like movies, a director or uh, a cameraman is going to, like, be extra critical. So do you find yourself when you're watching a musical? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, I will find myself getting ahead of it. Like, a, like I, you know, if, if I find that I, I'm going, I know what the next chord's going to be, I can feel what the next, next note's going to be, then... I, you know, I get a little disappointed because you want to be taken on a journey, but you want the journey to be a surprise. And for me, it's harder. 
it's harder to, for it to be a surprise mm-hmm. for me than it would be for other people to a degree. And also structurally, I go, oh, God, they missed an opportunity there. Um, you know, it's hard for me to see musicals because I, I will have basically one of two reactions, both of them not good. One will be, oh, my God, it's so good, it makes me depressed. <laughs> <laughs> Or it's not good, and I'm depressed. <laughs> don't don't you? Doesn't that happen with you in comedy, Gilbert? Don't you see the bit coming, oh. or see? But by, by this point in your career, oh yeah, see where the turn is, or where the where the twist is coming. You're ahead of it. Yeah, when when I watch comedy, for the most part, I'm going, oh, that was clever. Oh, that was <laughs> yeah, that's a good line. Yeah, but but the thing is, that, like, like this, the Gilbert Gottfried style of comedy. Is, is a conduit for certain comedy that will be funny as coming out of your mouth. Yeah. There's just something about it. It's like there's a part of you that's like, it's like a stalt behind it that is not commenting on it, but it's it's just this welcome mat for sometimes it's crazy stuff. Sometimes it's utter filth. Sometimes it's <laughs> utter absurdity. And it's perfect Gilbert Gottfried. You know, I've seen, I, I listen a lot to the comedy channels on, on Sirius. They play, you're up there a lot. And I'll hear some, you know, some of your routines that I haven't heard before. It's just, it's like, it's like a gospel preacher getting on a roll. But this, this is sometimes a roll downhill or a roll just into someplace you just never thought you were going to go to. I, I would think the same thing with musically. I may feel like, oh, my God, you know, I envy that. But I have my own voice. You have your own voice. So I I think we know that we have our own niche. I think no. I think that's why no one can write for you, Gilbert, because your your comedy comes from from such a unique sensibility, and you're deconstructing your comedy as you do it. You know this about yourself, right? Ah, uh, yeah. That they they used to call some. Sometimes they would call what you did anti comedy. Remember that phrase? Yeah, because real comedy's funny. <laughs> yeah. Okay, sure. Be, I, we know Gilbert's self-deprecating, but you know what? Isn't it, that funny? So many comics are really self-deprecating, and that's part of yeah. the strength, isn't it? It's um, well, he's an absurdist. He's a surrealist. Yeah, Gilbert. When he's when you you know the Ben Gazzara bit, you know extraterrestrial showing up on on Ben Gazzara's <laughs> lawn is pure. Do- <laughs> it's, it's it's Salvador Dali. Uh, Alan, how how hands on are you with with performers? We know Howard was very hands on, and I'm bringing up two people who've done this podcast: Brad Garrett and Jeffrey Tambor. Oh, who, well, Brad, who an, another with- another song, another. I guess I've got a dream is a want song. Yes, from I work ent- with both of them. Entangled. I uh, I'm less hands on than I used to be. I used to be very hands on, and for a multitude of reasons. One being, I have a great team. Uh-huh. Two, be, two being a lot of the times we're doing something in mind for the third time and I don't really have anything new to add. I'd rather have somebody else bring something fresh to it. Also, maybe I don't want to get on a plane and actually sit in a recording studio for, you know, for four days. And I'd rather just give you my notes and the thrill is gone for that kind of thing. I see. You know, Howard and I took on producing the, the music because we were the only ones who really understood what we were going to do. And now, you know, I feel it's people who really do understand, um, bet, you know, not better, but to understand what our, our intentions are, what my intentions are. And I still, I, there, there are times I've, I've said some crazy things. I, I'm a little notorious for sometimes saying the wrong thing to singers. I remember um, 
Judy Kuhn was doing um, just around the river bend from Pocahontas. And we, she had just gotten to the ISO booth and I wanted to make sure that the mic was getting her at the right volume. So she's singing just around the river bend. And I and I put my finger on the button. I say, so Judy, was that your performance? To, <laughs> to which the room got very quiet. And Judy said, I guess not. Uh, you know, and they go, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Christian Bale came in. He had been working on Santa Fe for, I don't know how long, six months, you know, because he, he's clearly not a singer, but he said, okay. And I go, I really enthusiastic. He was, he was getting, I said, God, that's good. It's a, it's a start. It's really good. It's a good start. He goes, it's a start? It's a start? It's a, you know, it's a fucking start. Um, you know, so I, sometimes it's, I'm best leaving my finger off the button. And I stay, see. Stay even, more in the back. Even, even with non-singers like Jeffrey and, uh, and Brad? They yeah, I mean, they, I, I, my idea, I, I loved, oh, Brad, Brad says one of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life. We were working on, uh, on Tangled. And my, uh, the conductor of that, on that session, um, B.A. Huffman, his name is, he's a little short guy. He was completely bald. Um, and it, he happened to be wearing sort of a gold outfit that day. And he was conducting Brad, who's really tall, and, and, and B.A.'s in front of him, and Brad goes, I don't know where to follow him, but thank the Academy. Um, <laughs> which just... <laughs> You're a funny guy. <laughs> cracked. Uh, he was so, 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 so funny. Um, but, you know, I, had, I, I remember what Danny DeVito was, was singing the uh, Philocates part, Phil. In, in, in Hercules. In, in Hercules, and he was... He's right, you know, um, I'm down to one last. I was, I said, I, I just needed to get one image. So I said, I said, uh, um, Danny, tell, think um, Jimmy Durante, which is that I'm down to one last. You just that, that one image did it. Oh, that's great. So just like Howard, when he could barely speak, told Pedro he was he couldn't even come into the studio anymore because the neuropathy had robbed him of everything. And she was singing, uh, new and a bit alarming, da-da-da-da. And Howard wanted much more of the quotes around alarming, but he didn't want to use the words. He said, so everyone had to get very quiet, and Howard said, tell Paige I'm new and a bit alarming. Tell her, Streisand. Oh, new and a bit alarming. And that was just that one note. Wow. Nailed it. So That's for great. me now, it's it's a matter of if if I can come in and make that one adjustment that needs to be made, great. But then when it comes to nuts and bolts, I think I'm best stepping back. I love that you guys speak this language. You all speak this language. A, a little, a little bit of that, a little bit of Durante here, a little bit of Streisand there, yeah, and and yeah. And, and, and they get it. It's, it's all part of a vocabulary. Mm-hmm. You know, the vocabulary of music, the vocabulary of performances. You want to do a a kind of performance. You, it's always, I get it. Oh, I get what you're doing. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast, but first, a word from our sponsor. You always hear these stories 
of composers who are dreaming and they dream of a melody and wake up and have has that ever happened to you? Yeah, but they have to be great melodies. I have dreamt, I dreamt, dream a lot about that I'm working on a song, um, but I don't usually solve a lot in terms of my writing in a dream. I, I definitely have dreams where I see the future and I'll go, you know, I, I, I met Janice in a dream. I knew who she was years before I met her. Your wife. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I, yeah, I do write songs in my dreams, you know. I'll, I often, often have this dream where I'm playing a concert you know, and I'm I'm playing, and then I realize in the dream that everyone has lost interest. They sort of walked out <laughs> out of the theater, and I'm still playing, and I'm going, "Oh no!" But anyway, here's yeah. another here's another uh, uh, slightly painful question, Alan. That that uh, that comes from jo- our engineer John Murray. Is is there a song that got cut from something that was an unkind oh that was an un- an unkind cut? Something that really hurt. So when you when you see even if you see the film now, you go, "Oh." Why isn't that song still in there? It belongs. Okay, good question. Good question. Good question, John and Samantha. Um, the basic answer is no. At the end of the day, the best song uh, wins, and it will win. In, in Sister Act, there was a song that we, we changed radically between London and New York, and I was happier with what we had in London. The director was happier with of what we had in New York, but it worked. It was fine. Um, so at the end of the day, I just go, okay. Now, I do have songs like Proud of Your Boy was was cut from Aladdin mm-hmm. because the character of the mother was cut, and it's one of our, Howard's of my best songs, but it's found its way, of course, into the um, the Broadway show of Aladdin. Uh, a song called Shooting Star was the first song we wrote for Hercules to sing before we wrote Go the Distance. It was a beautiful song, but very different in tone. So I understand absolutely why we made those those changes, those cuts. What's the one that Howard in the documentary? I'm trying to remember that with the Katzenberg wanted to cut. Was it part of your world? Where where? Yeah, it was part, yeah, it was part of your world. And and Howard said over my dead body. Yeah, believe me. I mean, if if, uh, if we hadn't come up with the solution we came up with, Howard's dead body would have been <laughs> would have been there for Jeffrey and Jeffrey would you know, but. Luckily, we came up with the idea that we, we, of course, we needed to have the context of she's singing part of your world, but in fact, this is a bad thing. We don't want her to go there and do that. Mm-hmm. So, so we're able to keep the attention of the younger part of the audience. What, what's a song that you consider? I heard you talk too about songs that let the lyrics shine. Oh, be our guest. Like one of the, 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 the you know, one of the most predictable pieces of music is. Uh, it's a it's a nothing simple simple piece of music but you put on top of it be our guest be our guest put our service to the test tie your napkin round your neck sherry and we'll provide the rest soup to jour how our turf it just it allows this bed for these brilliant lyrics to pop off of i love it i heard you say too sometimes that that some of your favorite songs, and it's always hard to pick favorite songs, and you've you've made that very very clear. Is some of the songs that you like to play are songs that were maybe less appreciated? Maybe a song like "Leap of Faith." Yeah, sure, "Leap of Faith." Um, I mean, I have a tr- a deep deep trunk of of songs and shows that people haven't heard. Mm-hmm. Some of my best songs are just sitting, you know, sort of submerged in that. When they opened the New Amsterdam Theater in New York. 
Tim Rice and I wrote an oratorio called King David, which was very ambitious. It was the life of King David told in a huge two-act oratorio with symphony orchestra and choirs. And it was, and there's some beautiful, beautiful material in it. But the context, it was like a meal that was just too rich. And I still am working on it, you know, pulling things out and trying to, to modulate it so that it, so that the things that are strong about it will work. And there's a lot, lot, lot of material in there that people have never heard. And some they have heard. But again, I, 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 I don't get very attached to that stuff because if I look at the Newsies example, I just go, you know, just wait long enough and things come back. That's interesting how that happens. John is requesting, he's saying to me, yes, I would love to hear a song from the trunk if you have one in you. I, should, I have to get the lyrics out. Home is the hunter. I've flown and contented. Home is my lover. All sins are repented. Noble expressions. Never again. Sorry about just the lyrics. Um, um, was that was, supposed was it, to be in Beauty and the Beast? No, that was it. That was in King David. In Leap of Faith is a ballad. Uh, uh, when I was just a kid, more than a bit naive, I knew dreams could come true, especially if you believe. Anyway, those those songs, there's a, a trunk full of them. It's hard for me to play them right now, but... Um, those of us that I, I, love songwriting would love to peek into Alan Menken's trunk, wouldn't we, Gilbert? Well, <laughs> you know what? I'll be glad to play you those songs. We could, you know, we could do that share the screen thing sometime, and I'll play oh, them for we you. Would love, we would love to hear them. What do you mean, uh, and I saw an interview with you uh, on YouTube, where you're talking about the importance of having fun when you're composing a song, getting out of your own way, yeah. let, letting it flow, letting it happen, letting in, sometimes you say the music takes you in the direction that it wants to go in. Absolutely. Okay. I like in writing, I like in music is a flow. It's like a water, it's like a flow of water. You can, you can put a, you know, a waterfall, whatever, you, know, you put your hands out, you could, you could divert it. You could move it this way, you can move it that way, you can make it splash, you can do, but what you can't do is stop it. It's mm-hmm. going to go somewhere. And that's what we do. We, we divert the flow, but the, but that flow, it sits in the key. I can move away from that key. But then you know when I come back home. Go someplace surprising. It's just, you let it flow, but you take people on a journey. And you always have to stay ahead of them. Beautiful. And you always be specific about where you're taking them. I got a a memory now out of nowhere when we were talking earlier about songs that don't belong in this scene. And it's just the song of watching a TV production of Jekyll and Hyde with Kirk Douglas. Wow. Where, yeah, where all of a sudden he and this girl, he takes out a bicycle which I don't know when that was in uh, Jekyll and Hyde. He takes out a bicycle and they sing this song, I Have a Bicycle. And, and it just, 
It just looked like the composer had it sitting in his trunk and said, oh, let's use this. It could be. It could well be. Uh, I'd love to see the, uh, the, you know, the scene in question so so I could comment on it intelligently. It's all a matter of of how you do it and how you set it up. We lay pipe in, Mm -hmm. in order to set up song moments. You definitely lay pipe so the story flows into the song, leads to the song. The song elevates and moves story forward. And then you continue with dialogue. And that interrelationship is, is crucial. You're always... You're like an architect of sorts. You're exactly what you are. We are architects. We design a house that other people are going to live in. That's fascinating. And, and when they live in that house, the house has to be constructed really strongly so they can, if they want to repaint it, they'll repaint it, but the house will still stand. If they want to even maybe adjust a room, we create a structure, a vocabulary and a way of storytelling that is a structure that uh, that actors will live in and musicians will live in and designers will live in. That's great. Alan, you've been very generous with your time as we wind down one question from a listener, if I could. Jonathan Sloman says, what can Alan tell us about the unproduced Who Framed Roger Rabbit prequel and the songs he wrote for it? Oh, Wow. Um, these are deep dives. These people do. Th- th- this would have been. It, <laughs> it, I think it would have been a lot of fun. Uh huh. Um, a lot of fun. Glenn Slater. It was my first collaboration with Glenn Slater, um, and we wrote, I think, three songs. Um, one actually uh, uh, has gotten out a little bit. Uh, oh God, what's it called? Uh, Maybe Jonathan, Jonathan, if, if you know what the title is. Um, we'll ask Jonathan. Uh, oh, this, it's called This Only Happens in the Movies. Okay. It, it was just going to be so expensive, unfortunately, to make that movie, I think. that was So it, it the plug got pulled, it never That's happened. too bad. Okay, I lied. A second question from a listener. Greetings from New Rochelle, David Wachtenheim. It's your hometown, is it? Yes, it is. Love your work. I'm a huge fan. Now, you've worked with so many lyricists. Do you ever find yourself tailoring your music to match a particular style of that lyricist, or is everything just dictated by the subject matter? Oh, no. I, I When I wrote A Whole New World, I tailored it to um, to, to Tim. I was thinking about, you know, the, some of the work in Evita mm-hmm. uh, when I wrote A Whole New World. Another beautiful love song. Yeah. Thank you. You've got um, so many. Oh, thanks. There, there are occasional times I, I will do that. More and more, I'm writing music first these days. But, you know, again, every collaboration with every lyricist and every project, they're all different. And, you know, you try not to be uh, inflexible about how you work because that, that, that's, that's death. You want to always be reinventing yourself. And I'm going to push you to work again. And can you play a little and sing Friend Like Me? <laughs> <laughs> Alabama had them 40 thieves. Shaharazani had a thousand tails. Mr. You and Luck goes up your sleeve. You got a brand of magic never fails. You got some power in your corner now. Heavy ammunition in your camp. You got some punch, pizzazz, yahoo, and house. All you gotta do is rub that lamp. And I'll say, Mr. Alanzer, what will your pleasure be? Let me take that on a giant down. You ain't never had a friend like me. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. I want to hear you sing it next time, Gilbert. 
<laughs> can we, Gilbert, Gilbert, can we get a copy of your version from the Tiki Room to Alan so he can hear it? Oh, yeah. I bet it's on YouTube. I probably can find it on YouTube. Alan, what's coming up as you as you uh, work under lockdown, as you, you work under these less than ideal conditions? It's a ton. We have a, a, the sequel to Enchanted. We start filming in about uh, um, two months. Disenchanted? We, we're calling it Disenchanted for the moment. We'll see. Uh-huh. That's, a, that's the working title. Okay. Obviously, the Little Mermaid uh, live action movie is now back filming after the pandemic. And Rob Marshall I, I allowed me a little peek into it in London just today, in fact. A new animated with John Lasseter's new company called Spellbound. Uh huh. A, a a beauty prequel, basically the backstory of Le, of LeFou and uh, Gaston, um, and that's for Disney Plus. The stage musical of Hercules, uh, which we did in Central Park, le- you know, uh, last year we did it at, the, at Delacour Theater. And uh, a stage musical of Night at the Museum, and uh, so you got nothing going on, and you're looking for work. Yeah, just kind of just hanging out. <laughs> Gil, I saved this for last. One of your favorite movies, here's a wild card for Alan. One of your favorite movies you revealed on this very show is The Apprenticeship of Duty Kravitz. Ah! Did you know there's an Alan Menken connection? Wow! Can I, uh, did you know I wrote a musical of The Apprenticeship of Duty Kravitz? No! I'll send it to you, right? I'll, I'll send it to you ASAP. <laughs> Look for your check in your mailbox, Gil. <laughs> it, it, um, well, no, I'll, obviously I'll, I'll send you a link. Uh, get me Gilbert's email address. Well, I'll, wait, wait, I have somebody's email address invo- involved with the show, yes, and I'll send yeah. it to you, Gil, Gilbert. Because on this show, I when, sometimes we'll recommend movies to see, and I recommended The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz. I will show you the. Uh, I have a cast album there somewhere. Um, it's good. It's very good. It's, it's a prop. You know, it's a, as a musical. It's a tough story because Duddy is this kid who's, re, you know, this Jewish kid who's really ambitious, and he wants to please his father, but he also screws over a bunch of people, and it's it's a delicate subject matter. But yeah, we, it, I, I'm really proud of that musical, and I worked with a man named David Spencer. And um, I will send it to you. Thank you. There you go, Gil. There you go. And a co- one compliment for you, Gilbert. Going back and watching Aladdin, which I did again to do the to do the research for Alan. I'd forgotten what a terrific actor you are. So good. Oh, thanks. So there. And I told Dara, but I said, "Don't tell him; he'll get a swelled head." But I'm telling you. Yeah. Oh God, it's so many classic. <laughs> He's got so many great moments. Yeah, they are great. They are great. Yeah. See, I'm a great actor, so so fuck you for not writing me a solo. <laughs> <laughs> I said, get a grip, get a grip, good grip. <laughs> You're young, Gil. Get, get, get a grip, get a grip, get a grip, get a grip. Jafar! <laughs> get a grip, get a grip! <laughs> Alan Macon has the best party tricks in the world. Okay. <laughs> Alan, this was great. So Gil, Gil will do a sign-off and let this man get on with his uh, his 27 projects. Alan, thank you for so many years of entertainment. You've made My pleasure. It, you've made us so happy, and you've made so many millions happy. And we're glad thank we you. finally got you here. Nice to meet you, and great to see you again, Gilbert. Oh, well, great seeing you again, Alan. And this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre and the legendary Alan Menken, who I know from Aladdin. <laughs> A real treat for us. Thank you, gentlemen. 
Thank you. It was fun. You ain't never had a friend like me.